Well, as we wrap up our series this, uh, this uh, morning on the mind, the Christian mind in particular, the topic that I wanted to focus on was, or is the topic of meditation. What is meditation? And, and so I'm going to take a, a, a phrase from, from Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. We're going to spend some time in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and look at meditation specifically as the Apostle Paul commands the Philippians and us to think on these things. But before we get there, I, I, I want to survey the, the concept of meditation a little bit and, and consider how that ties into the Christian mind. But before I go there, I, I, I want to note this observation that I've made of my own life as well as, as I've made observations about those close to me and look at my, my dad's life. Uh, and then also as I interact with uh, people today, one of the things I become more and more convinced of, and I do believe this is emphasized by Scripture itself, is that we really are the product of our thoughts. Certainly God and his sovereign plan forms and shapes us with circumstances and movements of him that are unquantifiable. I recognize that, and I'm so thankful for the grace of God in that. But from a human perspective, we are the product of our thoughts. And one of the things that I'm, I'm burdened about is when I talk with older men in particular, and I hear the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, challenges that they are going through and the circumstances that they are in, and, and my heart breaks because I realize that they are where they are today to a large degree because of thought patterns that were established in childhood and then strengthened and fortified in early adulthood, and now they're reaping the consequences. Of course, there are those who are reaping the fruit of all that. It's a delight always to speak with those who are living years and years and years, having been pointed in the right direction with their minds, and then living that out in their older years, all the fruit of that and the blessings that come. But so often when you interact with people who have problems, you see that the problems they are facing in life today, as it relates to personality and attitudes and so on, that those are largely the product of years and years of ways of thinking. And so how do we combat that problem, that reality that we will live out our thoughts eventually. And I believe that a large part of it has to do not just with 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, but also the concept of meditation, thinking on certain things. In the book of Romans, in this very well-known passage, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul also focuses on this, and he says it this way, giving us instruction as to how we are to deal with those old thought patterns that we bring into the Christian life. He says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice that phrase there, that even as Christians, those who have been saved, who have come to know the mercies of God, verse 1 of this chapter, that even those who have come to experience the mercies of God still must be transformed by the renewing of the mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So how does this renewing of the mind work? And I want to hold out here hope 
that even though you, you are the product of many, many years of thinking on your part, that there is a solution to it. It's not going to change your life instantly. I mean, it could, depending on what thoughts you're struggling with, but there is a way to change course. And while, while you may be reaping the negative consequences of a lot of bad thinking, a lot of bad thought structures that have calcified and, and, and have become just part of who you are, there is a way to change that. And that's the process of sanctification, and that's what Paul is getting at in this verse. He's, he describes it as the renewing of your mind, and how does this renewal of the mind take place? It takes place through an, an activity, an action that we must implement in our lives, and it's what we call meditation. Now, there's a lot of negative ideas about meditation. In fact, even when I mention that word, you may immediately think of all the baggage that is associated with the term meditation. Let's define it first then. Let's, let's look at biblical meditation defined. And, and first of all, look at what it is not. What biblical meditation is not. We can quickly, we can quickly understand that biblical meditation is not what is conceived of an Eastern religion, non-Christian, uh, religion. Eastern religion, transcendental meditation, New Age spirituality, all of those forms which very much focus on this idea of meditation but have a very unbiblical, different approach that has nothing to do with revealed truth. We're not talking about that. We're also not talking about quasi-Christian meditation that is very common in in Russian uh, or in uh, Russian... (laughs) Hang around with Russians, blame it all on them all the time. But on Roman Catholicism, no, I, I, I love Russians and being in Russia. I really do. I really do. Um, but Mark's not Russian, so that's... But Philip and, you know, Joseph, they're, they're Russian. But eh, they like Sala. But you have Roman Catholic mysticism. Very much meditation is a part of that. You have things like Lectio Divina and contemplative prayer, where there too, you, you do have that kind of meditation start with the revealed word of God, but then it quickly morphs into this state of existence where, where God is still communicating new ideas through this state of the mind. That's not what we're talking about with biblical meditation. What these and other forms of, of unbiblical meditation emphasizes is a kind of either passivity of the mind where the mind is put aside where it all becomes about feelings. The mind is emptied or the mind is abandoned, such as in New Age mysticism. The mind is turned off. That's not what we're talking about, a passivity of the mind. That's not biblical meditation. And we're also not talking about the focus of the mind on untruth, the focus of the mind on things that that are not real, trying to wish them into realities such as the power of positive thinking, that kind of meditation. That's not biblical meditation because it's operating upon the the power of the mind to create its own reality. And that is not truth. We don't create truth. We never do. All we can do is reflect upon truth. But when you use the mind to try to create truth, that is an unbiblical kind of meditation. Now, what is biblical meditation then? Well, let me first start off with some definitions given by some good theologians here. The first one is in a book called God's Battle Plan for the Mind. 
written by David Saxton. I really recommend this book. What Saxton does is he surveys the Puritans, and and I'm going to talk more about the Puritans in just a moment, but he surveys the Puritans and he looks to them for help in understanding the practice of biblical meditation, and he defines it this way, quote, the practice uh, of biblical meditation or the doctrine of, of Christian thinking. This is biblical meditation, the doctrine of Christian thinking, thinking Christianly. Now, I know that doesn't define it much, but it puts us in a, in a certain direction. It's the practice of, of thinking Christianly. Donald Whitney has a more helpful definition here. He describes it this way. Meditation is deep thinking, as opposed to superficial thinking. Deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. Meditation goes beyond hearing, reading, studying, and even memorizing as a means of taking in God's word. So notice how we said that biblical meditation is not passive, it's active, and biblical meditation is not dwelling upon untruth or trying to create truth, but it is focused on revealed truth. And Whitney brings that out so well in his definition. Another definition, this is a longer one, but it's a classic one by J.I. Packer. Let me read this lengthy definition here because I think it is very helpful and it comes from one who who really wrote much about this and and has a lot of really, really solid things to say. J.I. Packer defines meditation this way. He says, quote, Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God and to let his truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. It is a matter of talking to oneself about God and oneself. It is indeed often a matter of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. Its effect is ever to humble us as we contemplate God's greatness and glory and our own littleness and sinfulness and to encourage and reassure us as we contemplate the unsearchable riches of divine mercy displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a mouthful, but that really helps us understand the the nature of true biblical meditation. You can't just dissolve it into one word such as prayer or reading. There is a lot that is part of what biblical meditation is all about. And it's through this process that you are able to change the thought structures of your mind through this process that you're able to even change the way of your cognition, how you come to speculations, how you measure speculations and how you prove them, how you then live them out in your life. This is what biblical meditation is. This is the renewal of the mind. And this is the beauty of the Christian life 
And the wonderful hope of the gospel is that those who have come to know Jesus Christ, who have been made new, that this this exercise exists and there is fruitfulness when it's done according to God's ways and by his grace and by his empowerment that you can change your minds. You can have your minds transformed. You don't need to be the product of your old life of thinking. It can be changed. But it cannot be changed apart from this means that God has designed, this means of meditation. Here's an even older definition by Thomas Watson in his book, Heaven Taken by Storm. He says it this way, meditation is a holy exercise of the mind, whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. Notice again, he calls it a holy exercise. This is something that the non-believer, the unsaved person cannot do. It is an exercise of the mind. It's not something that is feelings-oriented. It begins and is controlled by knowledge. It is focused on the truths of God, his revelation. It is it is it is enacted when that is brought to our remembrance, our active thinking as we ponder upon them. It's a very Puritanesque idea of pondering, something that we have perhaps lost in our day and age, but it also includes application of them of those truths to ourselves. Here's another statement by a Dutch theologian by the name of Wilhelmus Abrakel. And, and he wrote much about, about meditation and in one of his works called Spiritual Meditation, he defines it this way. Spiritual meditation is a religious exercise. It neither consists in idleness, nor is it a passive disposition in which we are but recipients, permitting ourselves to be illuminated about the divine perfections and divine mysteries. Instead, it is an activity in which the soul is occupied in reflecting upon these matters, the divine perfections and divine mysteries, approving of them, delighting in them, is astonished about them and is quickened by them or is enlivened by them, enlivened to action. The Puritans believed that meditation was that important bridge between merely reading the scripture and merely praying. And sometimes in our practice, we, we do those things, but we don't do the important bridge between them. And so we miss out on the full import of the reading and having that then lead to the proper response of prayer. It is an important bridge. You could look at it this way. As you read the scriptures, as those, as the words of God come to you, they then have their role in your mind that then leads to proper prayer. Now, if you look at that and you see the LA Rams helmet there, you're not thinking about the right things right now. You're meditating on the other other stuff. So I just wanted to convict you a little bit about that. Now, why I thought about the LA Rams, I don't know. Anyway, back to what's important here. The Puritans also believed that meditation was also the bridge between head knowledge on the one hand and love for God and willful obedience on the other. And so maybe either, as you see that top point there, maybe your 
struggle in the Christian life is figuring out how to go from Bible reading to prayer. Or maybe your struggle is with the bullet point at the bottom here. Your struggle is to go from head knowledge to love for God and obedience. And the Puritans would say, well, you're missing an important component, and it is the exercise of meditation. Now, that's the Puritan definition of it. Let's now start to look more at the biblical, and, and, and uh, let me take you to some texts. I'll, I'll, I'll go through more, but, but let me first look at Psalm 42, verses 5 to 8. Here we have meditation in practice. Psalm 42, that great psalm with which we're all familiar the psalmist hears in despair. He, he writes this, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Now, a lot of us can put ourselves in that statement, those questions, as we encounter various trials in life and we go through moments of discouragement and even you could say moments of melancholy or de- depression. The psalmist did, but notice his response. He now moves to meditation as the cure for that melancholy. He goes on to say this. He starts now arguing with himself or preaching to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, now notice this word, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. He realizes his soul is in bad state. He's weary, he's discouraged. And so he begins to preach at himself. And as he does, what does he do? He remembers. He begins to meditate on the person of God the divine perfections, and he begins to meditate on God's works. Thus, biblical meditation can be summarized so far. We'll look at more texts in in just a moment, but so far we can define biblical meditation in this way. It has these characteristics. Number one, it always actively engages the mind. If your mind is turned off, it's not biblical. It actively engages the mind. Number two, it, it focuses as its object of thinking. It focuses on the truth of God. It focuses on the truth of God as God has revealed himself first and foremost in his word, in propositions, in words, in assertions, in descriptions. But it also involves his works. So for example, going out into the forest, looking at the mountaintops and, and meditating on the works of God as the psalmists often describe and, and seeing your smallness and his grandeur, and, and that's part of meditation. Or it's meditating on what you know God has done in your life in terms of your salvation and how he has delivered you, as we read first thing this morning, as Mark read us from, for us from Psalm 91. You meditate on the deliverances that God has given you. That's Meditation, it focuses on the truth of God. It contemplates that truth from various angles. It doesn't just let it come to mind quickly and then move on, but it, it ponders. It holds it, and then as it, it holds it, it's like a diamond. It looks at it, it, it slowly rotates that diamond, looking at it and the reflection of the light from various angles. That's biblical meditation. It also applies that truth to the 
will and to the affections. As I said, it preaches to oneself. And so where there's stubbornness or there's disbelief in life or little faith or there's little love, this kind of meditation aims at that and starts preaching at the will and preaching at the heart. And it also leads to whole person's conformity. It is, it is bent on what the Puritans called experimental religion. Now, when they use the term experimental religion, it's not that they're saying that, well, we've got to test this to see whether it's true or not. It's just a hypothesis, and we've got to work it out to see whether it actually holds up under scrutiny. That's not what they meant by experimental religion. What the Puritans meant by that is that you take what is true and you don't just leave it in the realm of theory. You actually apply it to the most practical, concrete areas of life. That's meditation. It aims at whole-personed conformity. It takes these truths such as Psalm 91 or Psalm 42 And it says, how does this apply to my struggle right now with lust? Or how does it apply right now to my struggle with loneliness? Or how does it apply to my struggle with, you fill in the blank. That's part of meditation. Now, let's look at this a little more closely with respect to biblical prescription. How does the Bible prescribe it to our lives? And we could look at many texts, and we don't have a lot of time, So I want to just go through a few, but know this, that this covers the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. Look at this text, Joshua 1 verse 8. Here Joshua is given his marching orders after Moses, the great leader of Israel, has passed away. And now Joshua is commanded to to take on that mantle and lead the people into the land of of the, the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And here he's told this, this book of the law, it's the Pentateuch, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have success. Now the word for meditation here, you shall meditate on it, it is literally translated as murmur. You shall murmur upon it. You might think, what is that? Is this some kind of, you know, gibberish? Some kind of angelic tongue? That's not what that word means. It actually has the idea of reading the text. Inherent in this ancient practice of meditation is the vocalization of each of the words of the text as it is read. You know, the practice of silent reading, which is so common today, was not how they they did it in the, the, the ancient times. For them, meditation was having the, the scroll in front of them and then articulating every word as they went from the text and, and speaking it out loud. We've lost that, and I think even in our, silent, our practice of silent reading, we miss part of what we are to get as we, as, as we read Scripture. We just see it with the eyes We don't pronounce it over our lips and we don't hear it with our own voice over our eardrums. One commentator describes that that text, Joshua 1 verse 8, in this way. The phrase, you shall meditate, implies eager, focused study, free of distractions. The reader's posture, 
pictures the text's importance. The reader hunches over it, eyes riveted on every syllable in order not to miss any detail. The the, the posture also mirrors how critical is the law's guidance. Only rigorous reflection can mine its depths. To skim the law is to imperil one's future by missing something crucial. Indeed, it is not enough simply to read it, think about it, or even talk about it. Joshua must be careful to act on it, to put Moses' instructions into practice, to live it out, and then give it feet in the real world. That's what is involved there as the angel of the Lord commands Joshua to meditate. We see this in many other texts. Let me go through these quickly. Psalm 1 verse 2, directly bringing in Joshua 1 verse 8, talks about the blessed man. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 63, verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you on the night watches. Those exercises are synonymous, really. Remembrance and meditation, they they require each other. To meditate requires remembrance, and we have lost that doctrine or that practice, I should say, of remembrance. Psalm 77, 11 to 12, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on all your deeds. You know, perhaps you're one who struggles with anxiety and you struggle with those moments of panic. And the solution to that, biblically speaking, is to meditate. And that meditation involves this exercise of remembrance. Get out of the moment that you're in. Rise out, uh, rise above that moment and go back in time and begin to remember the deeds of the Lord. Rather than trying to solve the pressing need of the moment and, and, and going down deeper and deeper and deeper into this black hole of uncertainty, the response that is needed is to leave that moment, to discipline your thoughts, to go back and remember. Look at how the Lord has delivered you unto this day. Look at all his loving kindness to you and giving you all the things you don't deserve and withholding from you all the things that you do. Psalm 111, verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. They are what? Studied. There's the idea of meditation. They are studied by all who delight in them. If you go to Psalm 119, I won't go there, but if you go to Psalm 119, it is filled with references to remembrance, to studying and to meditation. But let's look to the New Testament. And here's where I want to camp out for the remaining time that we have. Philippians 4 verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. There we have the pondering that the Puritans would talk about. Here we have the the concept of meditation, dwelling upon. To dwell upon here in this context means to give careful thought to a matter or to ponder, to, to dwell on. 
It's in the present tense here, which means this is not just something you do at the moment of your conversion, or this is something that you do sporadically throughout life. This is a command for continuous activity in your lives. And what are you to dwell on? Well, there's there's eight things here. Let's look. He divides them into two categories. Let's look at six kinds of things that he describes here in the first part of this verse. First of all, we are to dwell upon, we are to actively ponder that which is true. For something to be true, it means it pertains to being in accordance with fact. Or we could put it this way, what is true is that which corresponds to reality as God has determined it. Not reality according to the narrative of the world or even reality according to the narrative of your own flesh. What is true is that which corresponds to reality as God has determined it to be. Ponder that. Reality as God has determined it to be. It is the antithesis of falsehood. And this is very important because we think so many errors. We we are prone to think of that which is false. Just think about your thoughts about yourself. This is really where it is a problem. And you have perceptions of self-esteem and how you must be and those kinds of things. And you you dwell upon that. We all do. It is part of the flesh that is so self-focused. And so many of those speculations are just plain error. We think too highly of ourselves or we think too lowly of ourselves. And all of that has is, is wrapped up in sin. But we are to think that which is true that which corresponds to reality as God has determined it to be. Secondly, that which is honorable. This word refers to that which evokes special respect. That which is noble and dignified. It is a term used to describe the quality of elders and deacons. Elders and old men are to be honorable. And let me just ask you a question here. What is honorable would be if if there would be a, a cord that could be plugged into our heads, just wait for Elon Musk to, 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 to invent this, plug it into our heads, and then on the screen, show everything that we're thinking of. And if that would happen, if that was happening in your mind, would you like what is being shown to the world? Would it actually be appealing and honorable to the world? Well, that's the idea here, that the thoughts that you think and dwell upon have to have that quality. So certainly God sees them, but even if others would see those thoughts, they would be seen as inherently dignified. A third description here is that which is right. That which is right refers to justice, the requirements of justice, that which measures up to God's standard of righteousness. Think of morality here and think of concepts of of what is just and unjust and that your thoughts, what you're thinking in the privacy of your mind, you're, you're pondering those thoughts which conform to God's standard of righteousness. Number four, another word that deals with purity or morality here, it's the word pure. It means holy. This is an attribute of God. And it is something that God requires of everything that is given to him. If you go into the Old Testament, you had to have that which was consecrated or holy set apart for God because God is holy. He is set apart. So our 
thoughts are to focus on things that are dedicated to God, free of the profane and free of the, the, the worldly in the sense of that which is antithetical to God. Number five, that which is lovely, that which causes pleasure, delight, that which is pleasing and agreeable, that which is amiable, that which draws admiration. And number six, that which is of good repute, that which is praiseworthy, commendable, that which win is winning and attractive. And, and the Apostle Paul says, if you're going to, 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 to be renewed through the transformation of your mind, then it's going to require your mind to be pondering, dwelling upon these qualities. After all, we will become what we think. We will become what we think, and we all want to be these things. We want to be pure and lovely, of good repute and right, true, and so on. But you have to think the thoughts first. Paul says, meditate on these things. There's another two qualities, two summary qualities that are are given here. He ends that statement with these phrases. If any excellence, excellence is an uncommon character worthy of praise, It's excellence of character, exceptional virtue is the idea. It is used to describe God himself. God is excellent. And we are to have our minds dwell upon that which is excellent. And then it closes with this emphasis on anything worthy of praise. A thing that that is praiseworthy, something that when it is expressed, when it is thought of, that the onlookers would say, that deserves elevation. That deserves to be made much of. A thing worthy of praise. So biblical meditation is filling our minds with and giving careful consideration to the things which measure up to these standards. This is how you're going to be renewed. This is how you're going to change that old pattern in your life that you brought into the Christian life. And you, you may see, you may think of yourself as being a victim of that. You're not. You're responsible for that. And that can be changed. And that'll only be changed, however, through this kind of, of meditation, pondering continually upon these things. Now let's look at some final implications of all this. Number one, as you think about implementing Philippians 4 verse 8 or Psalm 1 verse 2 in your life, what does it mean? Number one, it means a commitment to read Scripture. Dwelling upon the things which are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise, it's not possible to do that unless you first put it into your mind. You can't remember what you haven't seen or heard or read. And so if you're to remember and ponder upon these things, you must put them into your mind. You must have exposure to them. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. It is vain to pray for an increase in the fear of God on our hearts without meditating on the passages of Scripture that are particularly used to stimulate that fear. In other words, if you want to see a virtue grow... If you want to see a, a characteristic grow in your life, you, you, you want to and you must first put that knowledge into your mind so that then you can ponder. 
So let me ask you, how is your reading of Scripture? How is your reading? One Puritan said it this way, if you would carry on the work of meditation in such a way as it may be done with sweetness, be sure that it be bounded with Scripture and let nothing at all within the compass of your meditation, excuse me, let me read that again, and let nothing fall within the compass of your meditation, but what falls within the compass of the Scripture. That's critical. Number two, take time then to ponder, not just to read, not just to get through your daily reading schedule so you can finish the Bible in a year or what have you, but take time to ponder. Meditation is digestion, not eating. Put it that way. That's a a great analogy. It's digestion, not eating. Reading is the eating. Meditation is the digestion. Again, Donald Whitney puts it this way. He says, hearing God's word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much as would occur with a more thorough soaking of the bag. It is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep until all the rich flavor has been extracted. This morning, I I made some coffee in a French press, but in my practice, it sits there for a long time before I push the, the handle down and pour the coffee. I want it to seep. I want it. I want all that I can get out of those coffee grinds into the water. And that's what meditation has to be. Not just a quick pour in the hot water on the coffee, push the thing down, pour out the cup. It just gives you the flavor. Nothing more. And even that is weak. Number three, recognize the means. Recognize the means. So how are you going to remember and ponder and and, and the, how are you going to put it in, inside of you? Well, that which is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, worthy of praise will come by you or into you through various means. Think of all the different ways that you can do it. There's not just one thing that you can do. And if you can't do it, there's no way to, 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 to ponder. That's not true. In addition to the reading of scripture, opportunities to meditate on biblical truth will come in, in various forms in listening to sermons, in reading books about doctrine, in singing hymns or listening to hymns, in participation in Bible studies. There's, there's many ways, and, and sadly, it's, it's a common characteristic that those who are struggling with some kind of deep struggles, not all the time, not all the time, but sometimes as you ask questions, what are you doing to put the word of God in you? And you'll ask and you'll, you'll hear these common responses. Well, my Bible reading is really weak right now. What about your prayer life? It's very, very weak. Are you listening to sermons throughout the week? Well, not really. Are you going to church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening? Well, I just go to the first service and then I go home. Would you go in the evening? No, I don't really go in the evening. Are you going to any Bible study right now? Well, my life is so busy. Well, that explains it. I can't help you. You're refusing the means through which these things will come into your life. And so when it comes time to remembering, you have nothing to remember. You have to put it in through the means that God has given. Number four, include God's works. Include God's works. The psalmists often speak not just of meditating on the words of God, but on his 
works. Psalm 77, verses 11 to 12, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. And this remembering certainly has the redemptive works of God, not just your life, but think of redemption in the big picture and how God has brought this into creation, how he He rescued Israel from Egypt. Meditate on that and how he also sent his son, Jesus Christ. Think of that and think of the great works of Jesus in his lifetime. And and then think of his death and his resurrection. And then think of the apostolic move or, or preaching of the gospel as it moved from Jerusalem to Rome. Those are the grand works that you meditate, but also on other works as works of creation. You go out into, into creation. And you look at what God has done and you think, you look at that mountain, which I think is Gregorno, right? Right? Or what's the, what's the big mountain there? Yeah, Gregorno. There it is. I think it's right there, right? You look at that and you see all the trees on it and all the rocks going down to little pebbles. And you think, yeah, it's not the pizza. I think that's, did I say the pizza name? <laughs> yeah, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's whatever that name is. It's right over there. 11,400 feet, something like that. It's on my bucket list to, to get up there someday. But uh, God knows every single tree. He knows every single rock, every single crevice, every tiny little piece of sand on that one mountain. And not only that, but on thousands upon thousands of other mountains around this world. You meditate on that. Number five, redeem the time. Redeem the time. Puritans spoke of deliberate meditation as well as occasional meditation. Deliberate meditation is that kind of meditation that's built into our regular schedules. It's that which we purposely place in our lives as habit. And that is foundational. But the Puritans also spoke of what's called occasional meditation. Like when you have a retreat like this, it's unusual, but it provides unique opportunities to go beyond and above what you've ever done before or you have an opportunity to go hiking, or you have an opportunity to meet up with an old friend who's a believer and you you spend the time recalling your testimonies. It's these sudden, short, spontaneous opportunities. Look for opportunities, especially in that occasional meditation during morning and afternoon commutes when you're in the car sitting in 405 traffic, waiting in lines, especially now as as, uh, all our government services are all going kaput is what will happen in a totalitarian system. All the unexpected downtimes that you have when you're sitting getting your car fixed, you know, and you have the opportunity, rather than grumbling, you use that and say, okay, I got to prevent my mind from dwelling there. So now I focus on the works and words of God. A Christian by a divine chemistry, says Manton, can extract golden meditations from the various earthly objects he beholds. Well, let's leave it at that. I know we, I think there's some discussion time here and I want to be sensitive with the time, but think of these five things and, and implement them in, in your lives. And this is critical to the Christian mind. You will not have a healthy mind unless you practice meditation and follow what we see as the biblical prescription and mandate. It's active. It is focused on God's word it involves knowledge and pondering, timed exposure, and it aims for whole person transformation. Let's pray that the Lord would increase this, 
this exercise in our lives for his glory's sake and for the wonderful benefits that this does. And let me just end with this exhortation that God in in the gospel and through the newness of life has given you so many resources. And so often it's easy for Christians to think that they're handicapped, that they're shortchanged, and that they don't have the, the, the resources to really meet the biggest needs of life. And I would say this, that there is so much more resources available to you in Christ Jesus than you realize. And it's going to require on your part action and discipline, but they're there. And that if you're in Christ, transformation is possible. In fact, it's not only possible, it's inevitable. And the beauty of it all is this, that as much as we struggle in this life, it is but a drop in the bucket. There is coming a time when all of what we talk about here and the need for the transformation of the mind will come to that final stage of glorification and all of the struggles that we face will be over once and for all. But until then, let's be active in preparing ourselves for that day. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel and all the resources that it contains. We thank you that in Christ there is newness of life and we are no longer in slavery to the old man. We're no longer in slavery to Adam, the fallen Adam, and all of of that life and all of its thinking. You have freed us and given us hope. You are transforming us, and that transformation is promised that there is coming a time when we will be made fully like Christ in his humanity. But until then, we recognize it is a process and it, is, it involves our own experience. And so we pray you would press this discipline of meditation deep within us, that you would help us to see the riches and the possibilities that are connected to the application of this wonderful grace in our lives. May we not shortchange ourselves by passing this by, but instead may we come to a full appreciation of this through its implementation in our lives. May we then experience the wonderful blessings that it brings in a renewed mind. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.